Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart, and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. If you want to grow in the spiritual life and you want to live in the rhythm of the New Testament, and you want to live in the work of Jesus Christ, and you want to live in the rhythm of the Holy Spirit, in the flow of the Holy Spirit, and what many of us might say, even the fullness of the Holy Spirit, then I want to encourage you to reconsider the grace of God, and the ongoing role of God's grace in your life. I think for many of us, grace is just something that we say before we eat uh, dinner. But in all actuality, grace is not just a prayer. Grace is not just a kind of a gift that God gave you, although it implies some of that. There's a lot more to the grace of God than I think we've ever paused to consider. And in our time together, I hope to just impress upon you the fact that when it comes to the grace of God, um, I think we have some learning to do. I think we have some growing to do. And I think we need a fresh understanding and a whole new paradigm regarding this thing called grace. I hope today will encourage you and I hope the truth and the understanding of today's lesson will really radically impact and empower and even transform your life. The Bible says in John's Gospel, of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Let's dig into it. And let's see what this fullness of grace is all about. It says that the Word became flesh. The mystical, described in verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, actually became flesh. This invisible God, this eternal God, all of a sudden became real. The Word became flesh. And the Word tabernacled among us. Your Bible probably uses the word dwelt. The Word who became flesh walked among us moved among us. The better word there is the word tabernacle. If you're a person who writes in your Bible, you can very easily circle the word dwell, and you can write in there, he tabernacled among us. Okay? Because that's the the word picture with that Greek word dwelt. Okay? So the, the word of God came. In the Old Testament, God pitched a tent. 
And that's where the presence of God dwelt among His people in that wilderness tabernacle. But now Christ is the tabernacle. The presence of God is in Christ, and Christ is the tent. And Christ now lived among the Jewish people. So this is the thought John is trying to convey. Okay. So the Word became flesh, the mystical, the esoteric, you might say, became tangible. And now it dwelt among us. And listen, we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father. In other words, when this tabernacle man, this flesh and blood man came and dwelt among us, through Him we saw something of God we had never seen before. We saw the real weight of, of God. We saw the real shining of God. In the Old Testament, smoke came down. A kind of a fire. And, uh, an old English word is an effulgence. There was a kind of a glowing in the Old Testament. Now, just this man in skin, in black hair, in, in black eyes, and calloused hands, this very common, very normal man showed them a side of God they had never seen. And he said here, we saw the glory of God. And now, he's going to try to describe to you the glory of God. When this man came, and he dwelt among us, and we saw the glory of God, it was altogether different than the glory in the Old Testament. Come back for just a second here to the book of Exodus chapter 19. All the people gathered around Mount Sinai. They washed for three days. They cleansed themselves. Men were not allowed to sleep with their wives. Everybody had to abstain. They washed. They built a perimeter around that mountain so that you don't cross over into that glory that was about to come. So people prepared themselves, and God got so giddy that day when He came down in His glory. Trumpets started blowing. The earth started shaking. Fire came down on that mountain. There was a loud sound, and there was quaking and thunder and smoke and fire. This was the glory of God. The book of Hebrews would hint at it that that mountain provoked fear in the people. That mountain provoked you wanting to cover your head and just hide under a rock somewhere. And that was the awesome, terrible, magnificent glory of God shaking that whole mountain. And I told you about the mountain in uh, Saudi Arabia. The actual top of that mountain is scorched. Come to Jesus' day over here. John is writing us a gospel. He's wanting to teach you who this person was that saved his life. And he says, you know, he came from God. And He was God, and He dwelt among us. And He brought with Him now the glory of God. And now as a Jewish man might even read this, you would think, oh, well, is Jesus, is He going to kill people? Kind of like the glory in the Old Testament, because you know on that day, 3,000 people died. There's a whole situation that happened there. So you might think, this man Jesus has glory. He might be like a Caesar, kill people and facilitate their death, and just rule and reign, and just put everybody down. Glory, like an emperor. Perhaps if you have a Jewish background, you might think glory, Old Testament. People couldn't stand. They fell all over the place. They trembled and shaked. And back in, in, in the Old Testament, they told Moses, you talk to God. Don't let God talk to us, because we will die. 
They were so terrified of the presence of God. Now John is writing, and he's going to describe to you the glory that's in this man. And I want you to notice now the description. What we call in biblical studies, the modification. He's going to modify the word glory. He's going to want to tell you what kind of a glory this man emanated. And that's at the end of verse 14. Go look at your Bible. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But notice the first word that is uh, emphasized there. This glory is not terrible. This glory is not fearful and loud and overpowering. This glory has what in it? Grace. Do you see the word grace? I don't want to emphasize the word truth right now. We will do that at a later time. But just notice, he's not like Caesar. He's not like the Old Testament glory that came down. This glory has something in it that's benevolent, that's kind, that's caring, nurturing, doesn't want to tear you down and destroy you. This glory, this grace wants to build you up. Can you see how he's beginning to describe Christ at a whole different level. Now, the average Jew wanted a kind of a Messiah that's just going to obliterate Rome. A Messiah that can just put everybody in their place. And truth is, Jesus was that kind of a guy. He can put anybody in his place anytime. But when he humbled himself and he took off his God capability, not his God nature, listen carefully. According to Philippians 2, he lay aside his God capability when he became a man. But he did not lay aside his God nature. Can you follow with me? Now, when he became a man, he was fully God. But he did not snap his finger and just make things happen according to the Gospel of Thomas and the Gnostic writings that made Jesus a superman. He was not a superman. He was a common man. An ordinary man. Yet he was fully divine. Everybody wanted a kind of a guy like you, you watched in that comic show called Thanos. Thanos. Everybody wanted that Messiah who can just snap his finger and things happen. Jesus could have done that, but he put that capability aside. He emptied himself of that capability. And he humbled himself. And so now, when they touched God, still God, as the ancients would say, true God of true gods. The real God. He was the real God. But now when we touched Him, instead of a snap that obliterates, out came grace. And it overwhelmed. They, they didn't know what to do with this. And John, more than any other gospel writer, would constantly use this word grace. To try to paint to you a picture, this man, although he was God, something came from him we had never experienced before. Amen? Amen. Grace. Flip the page to verse 15. John the baptizer testified concerning him that... This is he of whom I had said, He who is coming after me has become ahead of me, because he was there before I was. A little confusing verse there, but okay. <laughs> but I want you to notice verse 16. Powerful verse 16 and 17 coming up. 
for of his fullness. We're talking back here now about Christ again, okay? Of Christ's fullness, we have all received. Notice, he is the full one who gives. What do you do? I receive. That's spirituality 101. Amen. Of His fullness we have all received. Now what did you receive from God, John? Oh, do tell. And notice how your Bible says it. Grace upon... Hallelujah. Favor upon favor. Kindness upon kindness. Goodness upon goodness. Blessing and gift upon gift. Beloved... This Jesus was not glorious in the sense that He just snaps His finger and boom, everybody is destroyed. This Jesus, when you came into contact with Him, you touched something of the fullness of God. And like a waterfall, just kind of like overflowing constantly, what did He pour into your being? Grace upon grace. Now look at verse 17. John the writer wants to push this matter one step further. And he's now going to contrast Jesus the Christ and his ministry with Moses' ministry. And he's going to hint now at what Moses could give you. And then he's going to tell you what Christ gives you. And here you have a contrast in your Bible. The law was given through? On the other side, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So guess what? What John is trying to teach you is that the ministry of Moses could only give you the law. Can you follow with me? Yeah. Now he's contrasting it. He says, well, on the other side here, the ministry of Jesus is grace upon grace and truth. And we'll dig into that word truth a little bit later. So immediately you should be able to see Jesus and Moses are not on the same level. They don't have the same ministries. Can you follow with me? If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul will pull the two completely apart. And will, Paul will put down the ministry of Moses and he will exalt the ministry of Christ. If you go to Matthew 17, Matthew will do the same. They will be Elijah and they will be Moses next to Jesus. And they will appear in a, in a, in a, in a glorious mountaintop experience. And what's going to happen is Moses and Elijah will fade away and Christ will remain. There's a contrast. John is writing a biography on this beautiful man, Christ. But this man is just a little bit different than all men that has ever existed. And he's trying to say here, we are touching the glory of the Father through this man. And then he's giving us a hint how the glory of God manifested. <laughs> I know most of you. You want gold to fall out of the sky. I know you. You want like furniture to turn into silver. Now this is the glory of God. I know you. You still want to fall all over the place. I know you. You're after the, the shaking and the quaking and the loud. And the, that's the kind of glory that you've got, how do you say, fixated in your mind. Have I lost anybody yet? I, I, I'm the same. Give me the glory. Now John is trying to tell you the glory. But it's a different kind of a glory. 
Moses' glory caused the mountain to shake. And all of those folk that saw that glory died in the desert, never went into the good land. It's kind of interesting how you can see glory and still miss it. But here comes Christ. He gives you a different kind of a glory. His glory is two things. Grace upon grace. The idea there in the Greek language, it's inexhaustible. That's the idea. But then he adds the word truth, which is a whole other can of worms. Moses did not give you grace and truth. Although everything Moses told you was true. But in the New Testament, truth shifts to the word reality. Christ gave you God's reality. Moses could not give you God's reality. Can you begin to see who this person of Christ is? Yeah. All right. Grace upon grace. It says there, uh, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father. Notice that phrase. That's a phrase of intimacy. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. What does your Bible use for the word declared Him? Revealed. He revealed. There's your word. He revealed Him. He made Him known. Christ came and drew the curtain open on the nature of God the Father. The prophets couldn't open up the curtain. Moses couldn't open up the curtain so that we could see the very core of God's being, the very bosom of God's being. So here comes Christ, who is from the bosom of God. He is the one in the book of Revelation that has the authority to unlock the seals, to break that seal, and to read the scroll. That is, He's the authorized one to interpret God for us. Can you follow with me? The prophets tried to, but they, they, they couldn't fully disclose God to us. Moses couldn't fully reveal God to us. He didn't even see God. At one time, God appeared to him, but he had to be uh, uh, hidden in a cleft of a rock. He was allowed to see the backside of God. Moses came very close, but he still fell short. And according to the book of Hebrews, Moses fell, his covenant was not complete. The, the, the truth that Moses gave was not complete. Otherwise, there would not be a need for another one. If Moses gave you the fullness of God, there is no need for another one. That's, a, that's the thought of the book of Hebrews. So John now tells you who this Christ is. And he comes and makes God known to you. Now most of us want to still know God after the Mosaic Covenant. We want to see a shaking God. And of course he is a shaking God. You can't argue with that. He is a fearful God. The book of Hebrews even says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. No doubt God is glory in power, in majesty, in, in, uh, no doubt. But Christ comes and draws the curtain open and, and lets the light of God through on another dimension of God, grace and reality. Grace. So let's focus on that for a few more minutes. Have I lost anybody? John's gospel is giving us a glimpse of Jesus we've never seen. And Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the Father we've never seen. And it's the glimpse of grace. That's why I call grace 
the axle of spirituality. You have no walk with God. You have no intimacy, no momentum if, if God cannot pour out grace upon grace upon grace upon unending, inexhaustible, undiminished grace. Somebody should write a song about it because it's amazing. Okay. Now, look at your sketch. I quickly just want to point out three things. God the Father will supply you with grace towards a certain end. God the Son will pour out His nature and grace upon you towards a certain end. God the Holy Spirit will likewise grace you towards a certain end. The triune God is grace. What is grace? Grace is the triune God. Okay, grace is Father, grace is Son, grace is Holy Spirit. Now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wants to pour out upon you grace upon grace. But now from the Father, grace will be experienced a certain way. From Jesus the Son, grace will be experienced a certain way. And from the Holy Spirit, yet grace will be experienced another way. Look at the sketch. It's almost as though there is a grace that comes from God that I call benevolent grace. Look at your sketch there. It's the grace that seeks you out. It's the grace that adores you and loves you, that wants to find you in your lost condition. It's a grace where God is seeking an encounter with you. And the response that God wants from you when He pours out that grace upon grace upon grace to seek you, to find you, to come rescue you, to come love you, to come adore you, that, that force coming out of the person of God, all He needs from you is humility and say, Oh God, yes, pour on me. I call this, and this is my own study, this is not the language of any man or woman here, this is my own understanding of grace. As I've read the scriptures, I see that God is after you. Some person at a certain time in history called God the hound of heaven. He's like a dog just seeking you out. Where is he? Where's my son? Where's my daughter? Now God's seeking you. God coming after you. And you sing the song. No mountain he won't climb up. No. Sing it. He, no giant he won't slay down, no wall he won't knock down, no dragon he would de-thing. When you're singing all of that, what are you really singing? You're singing about coming, God coming after you. Okay? So there is this grace of God coming after you. And it's not like a coming, He came after you a year ago and today He's on vacation. He, there's <laughs> of His fullness, you get grace upon so if He came after you yesterday, He's coming after you today. Amen. You can run, but you can't hide. Amen. That's a great title for a book right there. But this is the grace of God that um, is the seeking out grace. Can you follow with me? Yeah. All right. Now there's a kind of a grace that we come to understand is also from Christ. And it's a grace to lift you up from this earth and seat you with Him in the heavenly places. So I put a little picture of a man there that's seated. Okay. You don't deserve to be on the throne with God. You just don't. 
You and I deserve to be buried in that earth, in the muck and mire, and we should just die and have nothing to do with God. But here comes the grace of God seeking you out. And here's what God does. He doesn't only clean you up here on earth. He raises you up and seats you with Him in the heavenlies. It's a grace that lifts you up. It's a grace that removes you. It's a grace that exalts you, if we could even use such a phrase. It's a grace that makes you more than you will ever be in the natural. Awesome. Amen. And this is, why can God pour out this kind of a grace upon you? Because Jesus paid for it. The only reason you can sit with Him in the heavenlies, sit on God's lap, as we might say, lean on His bosom, as John might even have done, the only reason you are welcomed in the throne of grace is because blood was shed. So God didn't just die for you to keep you on this earth, you know, roaming and drifting and confused. God comes and He clothes you and He washes you and He renews you, but then... He says, come, come sit where I'm seated. Come rule and reign with me. Come and inherit what I have procured for you. This is a kind of a grace that makes you live from the heavenly perspective. That sees your identity not from the earth's perspective, but from God's perspective. Hallelujah. So I, I would say this is a grace that um, is from Christ. And it's, in my terms, redemptive grace. You may have a different term for it. And, hey, don't get this technical with people, okay? Just don't make for great Sunday morning preaching. Don't do this in your Bible study. This is for you to just understand Father, Son, Holy Spirit has unending benevolence. So it's, it's, it's God's redemptive grace. This is a grace that doesn't seek you out. This is a grace that seats you in the heavenlies. This is a grace that says you are accepted. You are justified. This is a grace where you get to enjoy God. I don't know how that sits with your theology to enjoy God. Most of you are bothered by God. You endure God. And you call Him Jehovah Schlepp. He's just kind of like a... Some of you even call Him Jehovah Bother. Like, why are you bothering me? No, God's not Jehovah Schlepp, bother, drag. He's to be enjoyed. Yeah. And if, 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 if you take the grace, you will enjoy God. Yeah. Oh gosh, I've got to spend time with God. Pray for me, someone. Jehovah Boring, that's not His name. This grace seats you with God, and this, this grace justifies you. This is where you begin to have confidence before the throne. Like, thank you, God, you accept me. Thank you, God, I'm loved. Thank you, God, I'm favored. You begin to think this way. You begin to act this way. Grace upon grace. And I call the response that God needs from you here is just good old-fashioned faith. So the Father is seeking you out. The Son wants to seat you in the heavenly places. And then what about the Holy Spirit? Notice a little man there is walking. This is just my understanding of this kind of a grace. This is where the Holy Spirit wants to grace you, supply you in this earth. Again, how? Grace upon? Grace. grace. 
of his fullness he wants to supply you to walk. So I call this, again it's my term, functioning grace. This is where you get to serve because God gives you the grace to serve. This is where you're anointed. This is where you're equipped. This is where you get to express God. And all that He needs from you to experience this kind of a grace is obedience. To experience the grace that the Father has for you, seeking you out, just humble yourself and let that grace like a river come find you at the low spot. Jesus Christ, oh man, he, all He needs from you is just to believe. And all that the Holy Spirit needs from you is just good old-fashioned obedience. The definition of grace, you can look up in Bible dictionaries, it, it's a gift. And yes, it has favor, it has kindness, it has all of those things connected to it, but I think folks still miss the point. Why do I give you a gift? It has a goal in mind. When God gave you Himself in Father, in Spirit, in Son, in Spirit, when God gave you Himself, it's not just so that you have a badge, hey, I got God. God gave you Himself to, to do something in you. So grace is not just God turning His face away. God is actually staring you down. He's coming after you. For to what end? To do something with you. That grace will move you, seat you, lift you, supply you, equip you, anoint you. It's not just a gift, it's a supply.